Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have your seats. Well, good morning. Everybody doing well? Yeah? Good. Good. Well, good morning. I want to welcome you. My name is Adam Young. I'm the lead pastor here at Element Church, and uh, we're excited that you're here for what is, for us, uh, week three of a series that we've entitled The Five Solas. Um, we are commemorating uh, the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther and his posting of his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany, which um, is really what began the Protestant Reformation. And maybe you know a lot about Martin Luther and the history of the Protestant Reformation. Maybe that is completely foreign to you um, because you you know, for whatever reason, maybe you don't like history or that's just a part of history that you don't have a lot of familiarity with. Um, as the Protestant Reformation began in many aspects, it helped to guide and make a significant impact uh, in, the, in the period of the Renaissance and in the scientific revolution, uh, which really means that what happened 500 years ago with one Augustinian monk uh, in a small German town um, really changed the course of Western civilization. And you and I sitting here today are in many respects a tribute to what began uh, and what process took place 500 years ago. And so the reason we're doing this now is because it was October 31st, 1517, when this Augustinian monk named Martin Luther decided that he was going to make known publicly his frustrations with the, the current Christian church and culture of his day. And so he took a uh, what we call the 95 Theses, but it was 95 points of um, particular frustration that he had. He put it in a bullet point list, essentially, and nailed it to the front door of the church, which was sort of like the community bulletin board of the day. And it began a, a firestorm of changes uh, that really have resulted in us being here today. So to kind of honor and commemorate that, um, what we're doing uh, is spending the five weeks of October talking about sort of the five themes or slogans or rallying cries of the Reformation. And, and Martin Luther certainly wasn't the only one involved in this. Um, and so while uh, we generally break it down like this, we've been taking one each week, Sola Scriptura. Uh, these are in Latin because at the time of Martin Luther, the only Bible that was permitted uh, was the Latin Bible. And the only ones who could read Latin were the priests who were trained in seminary to read Latin. And uh, if you were caught with a Bible in, a, in a, any other language, a language that you could read, um, it would uh, certainly lead to the destruction of that Bible and potentially the destruction of your life. It was a, 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 uh, an act that could carry the death penalty and many Men and women over the centuries have died trying to get the, the Bible into language people could understand. And so um, these five phrases are in Latin because just because of the early reformers and their use of Latin, um, even though we're uh, just kind of introducing the ideas this way. So sola scriptura is scripture alone. Week one, we talked about the idea that scripture is our highest authority. It's not a man. It's not a pope. It's not a council. It's not a bishop or a group of people, Scripture is our sole and supreme 
authority as we test to understand what God is speaking and his will. That includes me. And so anything I say should always be put up against scripture um, and should always be read through that lens. Um, You should never just take my word for it or any other teacher or preacher or instructor um, that the scriptures are our highest and supreme authority. Uh, Last week we talked sola gratia, which is Latin for grace alone. And uh, Jay mentioned it, Roselle mentioned it. Um, Last week was a little bit of a heavier message where we just really landed on uh, the depravity of all people. And we said it like this, that there are a lot of problems in our world, no doubt. We can look around and we see a lot of issues, a lot of problems, a lot of darkness, a lot of injustice. But the greatest problem facing our culture, our community today is that all of us are under condemnation because we have all committed treason against the king of the universe. And just like committing treason in this country, committing treason against the king of this universe carries with it a death sentence. And so we just talked about the depravity of all people, ourselves included, and how no matter what your background is, maybe your background is very religious and you had a lot of religious to-dos Um, a lot of religious rules that you follow, or maybe you had a very anti-religious background uh, that had no involvement with God. Um, What the Bible does is paint this picture that we're all in the same boat. If you had a bunch of rules, you're guilty because you didn't do a good job following them. We've all had rules in our lives, and we all know our own inability to just, you know, do really well and follow all the rules. If you didn't have a list of rules, you're equally as guilty because God has continued to reveal himself and we continue to reject him. But God, rich, being rich in mercy, has poured out his grace on us. And so last week we spent our time talking about despite our own depravity, God's grace is rich and beautiful and made available to us, and it is not something we deserve, and it is not something we earn. By very definition of what grace is, God has poured out his unmerited, undeserving favor on those who believe. And so we talked about how we are saved by grace alone, and really kind of in step with this, this would almost be like a part B or part two of last week's message, is we're in week three, sola fide, which is Latin for faith alone. And what I want us to do is we're going to actually um, start today in one of the scriptures that we left off with last week, which is Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So if you have your Bible, welcome to open it up if it's one of our Bibles in the seats. Um, if you want to make it really easy on yourself, if you'll pull out your phone and open up the Bible app, you can hit the uh, menu button and uh, go to live events and your phone will know you're at Element Church and you can click uh, Element Church there and not only will you have all the scriptures for today right there for you, in the Bible app you can take notes You can save things if you want to think about them or uh, reflect on them later. Um, Also, all the announcements that we make today, um, you know, the connection card, the envelope, anything that's in your seat, you can do the same stuff right here in your Bible app. And so I'd encourage you to do that uh, if you have it with you. Um, Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in in which you once walked following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is what we talked a lot about last week. This, this picture that the Bible paints, is, paints of us is that we're dead. That we're dead in our sin and rebellion and treason. That we're guilty. And that ultimately, by our own nature, by our own sinful nature, we are children of wrath. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And that is why one of the rallying cries of the Reformation and of our beliefs today is grace alone. By grace you have been saved, verse 6, and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That we are saved by grace through faith. Not of your ability to follow a religious to-do list. Not your ability to be very, very good and honorable and respectable. Not because we imagine there might be some cosmic scale that will stand before in the end, and our good, good deeds outweigh, you know, are being weighed against our bad deeds, which is how a lot of people assume the final judgment will take place. You know, I'm a generally good person, so surely God will be impressed enough to let me into heaven. And as we talked about last week, the problem is that our good deeds are not compared to the bad deeds of people like Hitler or the shooter in Las Vegas. Our righteousness will be compared to the righteousness of Christ. And in that, we always fail. It is not our good deeds, our hard work, our best efforts. It is the gift and grace of God. And that gift and grace is made available to us through faith. Now, we're not going to do this, so I don't want you to get worried before I say it. I would be interested to know how you would define faith. If we were in a, a course, a class, and I were your instructor and I said, hey, we're going to have a pop quiz. Everyone pull out a sheet of paper. You remember how pop quizzes were? You remember how much you hated them? Good thing is, we're not really doing that. This is an illustration. So let's just say we're doing a pop quiz. Pull out a piece of paper. Your one question is define faith. I want you just to think about it for a minute. What, what is faith? If faith is the gate through which we access, and, or at least through which God pours out His grace and His gift 
on us, that we are saved through that avenue of faith, what is it? It seems like it would be a pretty important concept to know and understand and be able to define what is faith. Here's how I believe most people would define faith. Then we're going to talk about how the Bible would paint a picture for us of faith. Most of us probably assume that having faith is having, uh, coming to a place where mentally you believe and accept a set of facts. When we talk about believing in Jesus or having faith in Jesus, assuming that faith means to have faith in Jesus, to believe some facts about his life. He was a sinless person who died on a cross unnecessarily, was buried and raised three days later. We mentally agree to a set of facts. But I think the Bible paints a much different picture of faith than just this mental acknowledgement of facts about Jesus. And so what I want us to do is we're going to walk through a few scriptures that will help just to begin painting a picture for us And while there are certainly a lot of aspects of the Bible that talk about faith as believing, um, we're not going to spend much time in it today at least, but Hebrews chapter 11 is virtually an entire chapter on faith and what it means to believe and giving examples of what happens when people believe. And so belief is certainly a part of it, but it's only a part. And so I want us to walk through some scriptures together as we paint a picture of what faith is. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I want you to look at this last slide here, this, just the end of verse 9 and um, verse 10. But that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then look how he begins to describe what this faith looks like. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that I may know him. This is different than acknowledging a set of facts about Jesus. I could stand up here and give you a list of facts about somebody, anyone. 
I can get on eHarmony or Facebook or whatever kind of other social network where you can get a list of facts. And I could come and I could share those list of facts with you and you could acknowledge that, hey, those facts are true. But in no way, shape, or form know the person to, I'm describing to you. So there's a difference between a recognition of facts and that relationship and knowledge. Paul, talking about faith and what this faith looks like in his life, he says, in speaking about what he's given up in order to pursue Christ, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is what Martin Luther famously called the great exchange. Our unrighteousness for Christ's righteousness, an exchange that took place on the cross. As as 1 Corinthians 5 says, that he who knew no sin became sin for us. Talking about Jesus. That, That exchange of our unrighteousness and sinfulness that Jesus took upon himself in that punishment on the cross so that we could have his righteousness. That righteousness that's going to come through faith And as Paul describes that faith, he talks about knowing Jesus, experiencing his power, sharing in those sufferings, being identified with his death. That's a lot more than just a recognition of historical facts. James is going to define true faith even further for us. James is actually the the half-brother of Jesus. Um, As the the Bible paints the picture, James and his other brothers um, did not believe in Jesus uh, during his earthly ministry. They recognized his ability to do miracles and his ability as a great teacher. As a matter of fact, at one point in John chapter 7, um, it may be chapter 8, John chapter 7 or 8, his brothers actually tried to convince Jesus to go to Jerusalem to do all these things out in public so more people could be seen, so could see him and more people would be impressed by him. But specifically, the Bible tells us they did not believe in him until the resurrection. And when they saw their brother resurrected changed everything for them. James would go on to be the greatest leader of the church in Jerusalem during the first century. A church that sort of became the central hub for all the missionary efforts that went out throughout the Roman Empire. And this is what he says about faith. This faith that he now understands upon seeing Jesus resurrected from the dead. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, person, that faith apart from works is useless? 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. James and many other writers in the New Testament have no concept for a faith that does not have actions attached to it. Now here's what the Bible is very clear. Through our actions, we do not deserve grace. We do not earn grace. We do not earn the ability to have faith. Even as James is having this discussion, he even quotes Scripture that says, from Genesis, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That there is an aspect of belief in faith and that works can be technically separated from faith in a, by a definition standard. But the Bible has no concept for a faith that does not have works. Faith is much more than just agreeing to a list of facts. It's buying in with your whole life. James uses an example. What good would it be if you said to someone who is in need, I wish you the best. I hope you well. It's cold out there. Stay warm. But you don't do anything? How valuable are those words? What happens, what, what James is trying to say is, if you don't do something, what you reveal is that your words were empty. You don't really wish them to be warm. You don't really wish them to be well off. If your words were true, there would have been actions to follow. And so your actions reveal what kind of faith you have. And this is the picture that the Bible paints of faith. Let's look at just a few more. We're going to go back to Paul again in Galatians 5, 2 through 6. We're going to go through these next few quickly just so we can see this picture that's being painted. Starting in verse 2, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. I'm going to explain this in just a minute. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So let me give you the context of what Paul is talking about that, because that's a really strange set of uh, words and verses to read out of context. The Old Testament law, um, served as f- sort of an identity marker for the Israelites, God's people. And um, there were certain things that uh, we, we might label um, badges of covenant faithfulness. Uh, these badges that people would wear, not literal badges on clothing, but badges that showed that, that they, had, they were in a covenant relationship with God. For the Israelite people, the Jewish people, and the Old Testament, and then leading into the first century in the time that Paul's writing, there were three things that were key markers or distinctions that set the Jewish people apart from everyone else. Okay, um, It was 
the rite of circumcision, it was food laws, and the Sabbath. Those three things, they're not the only, but those were the three big ones. And we can see from writings in the early B.C. centuries and early A.D. centuries that, that, that the Jewish people took this as a source of pride. We have these things, and that's what makes us different and better than everyone else. So in this particular section, what Paul is doing is he's attacking the idea of these ethnic separations. So you got to remember that the Jewish people, it's not only a religion, but it's also an ethnicity. And so there's a sort of ethnocentrism that bleeds through uh, here a lot. And, and Paul is calling him out on this because he's talking to a group of Christians who believe in Jesus, but are then trying to force all these new converts to Christianity to follow the old laws, to, to start following um, all these Old Testament laws. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. It's not Jesus plus the law. It's just Jesus. And so he starts calling these people out for forcing new converts to adhere to old laws that are irrelevant now. And so that's why he's talking about circumcision, uncircumcision. He's saying, listen, if you consider those things so important, you have severed yourself from Christ. If you're going to put your faith in the law, then your faith isn't in Christ. That's what he's talking about here. And then to sum up this discussion, he says in verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, so think in Christ Jesus, neither adherence to the Old Testament law or non-adherence to the Old Testament law counts for anything. At this point, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't put you a leg above or a step above anyone else but only faith working through love. 2 Thessalonians, I want to read two more for you, just as sort of example case studies of faith. Say this in verse, says this in verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by its power by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's prayer is that through God's power, they may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. One more, Romans 1, 5 through 6. Through whom we have received, talking about Jesus, grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So here's why we're talking about this today. I think one of the greatest disservices that I could do as a preacher and spiritual leader, the, one of the greatest disservices that we could do as a church, and one of the greatest disservices that many churches in our culture and community have communicated, is that all you have to do is agree to a set of facts, and you're in. That all you have to do is agree to a set of facts about some historical person who lived 2,000 years ago, and as long as you agree and 
check mark, put a little check, initial, sign your name, I agree with these facts, that you can then live however you want and you'll be good. And I think the picture that would be more accurate of what the Bible paints is faith in Christ is the gate through which grace comes to you. Nothing you do, no amount of works will ever impress God. No amount of works will ever earn His grace. Faith is all that matters. However, true faith bears fruit and shows evidence that it's true. So it's a very thin line, but I want to make this very clear. You cannot earn grace. No amount of work you can ever do will impress God and cause him to save you. There is no religious to-do list, no list I could give you, this church could give you, or even rules and commandments out of scriptures that you can obey that will ever bring God's gift of grace into your life. That happens through faith and faith alone. That's, that's why it was one of the rallying cries of the Reformation. Faith alone, not adherence to a pope or a council or a set of um, sacraments that the Roman Catholic Church, because that was the only church uh, in, in that culture and in that time, not a, a set of sacraments that they tell you you have to perform. It is we access grace by faith and faith alone. I want to make that very clear. You cannot earn it, and you don't have to work to keep it. But the Bible also paints a picture that genuine faith has this outworking in your life, that there are works of faith, obedience of faith, that true faith has works as evidence that it's there and that it's true. And I think that's a key point to make that faith in Christ is not just a set of facts to acknowledge, but it's this buy-in. The real difference is many times we think of faith as a head thing, but the Bible would paint the picture that faith is a heart thing. that it's a, a buy-in to who Christ is. That it results in you giving yourself to Him. That it results in you knowing Him. Not knowing about Him, but knowing Him. And remember what James said? He said, oh, you believe? That's good. So do the demons. You think Satan believes God exists? You think Satan believes that Jesus was a real historical person who died on the cross? You think Satan believes that Jesus resurrected from the dead? He was there to witness it. But there is a difference between a mental acceptance and acknowledgement of facts and a heart buy-in. And I think a, a great disservice that we could do to you or for you would be to convince you that if you will just acknowledge these historical facts, then you're good. And the Bible paints a picture of faith that is much deeper, 
much more involved and requires your whole life, not just a portion of your mind. You never earn grace. You never work to keep grace as though you might lose it. But true faith reveals itself. And I think a question that we should ask ourselves and be very honest is in, in, in evaluating the kind of faith that we have in our lives. Do you have a total buy-in heart faith that pushes in to know Christ, not just know about Him? Do you have a faith that has outworkings that show that what you say, maybe with your actual words, your physical mouth, or what you say in your heart, is there a part of your life that reveals that to be true? And that's a real examination that I think we should all stop and pause and realize. Because our works are an outflow of what happens when grace is poured out on our lives. When we have genuine faith in who Christ is, it has an outflow of works in our life. That our, our lives begin to show evidence of that. Not that we earn it, but that we show evidence of it. And as we talk about what is so dear to the Protestant Reformation as they cried, Scripture alone, there's no other authority higher than Scripture. Grace alone. Faith alone. It's important for us to understand what faith is as we look to recognize it in our own lives and as we continue to allow God to mold and shape us so that more and more our lives reflect what's really there. It doesn't happen immediately. It becomes a process. But that our daily lives begin to reveal what's true deep down in our hearts and in our minds together. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for our time together here. And Jesus, I want to celebrate that we have no ability to earn your love, to become worthy of your grace, to work to get or to keep grace because we can't. We don't have the ability. We're not good enough. We're not strong enough. We're not consistent enough. Our lives do not meet the standard. And we celebrate that you have poured out your gift of grace on our lives for those who believe. Jesus, we want to begin by accepting those facts of who you are and what you have accomplished. But God, don't let there be a barrier between our heads and our hearts. Don't let it stop at just an acknowledgement of historical facts, but let it move down into a life-altering 
realization and acceptance and buy-in. So that our lives reflect and reveal those beliefs to be true. Would you give your eyes closed for just a minute as we come to a time of closing and reflection? This is not a message designed to guilt anyone into doing better. Because the reality is you can't do better apart from the power of God. Your own abilities and your own best efforts aren't enough. This is not a message about earning something, about becoming worthy of something. This is an acknowledgement that we aren't worthy, we are unable, and we must rely solely on the grace of God that comes only through faith. It never comes through work. But if there is no evidence, if there is no work, if there's no part of your life that shows your faith to be genuine and life-altering, then it should cause us pause and concern. It should force us deeper into reflection. So this morning, take a moment just to reflect your own life. Ask God to reveal to you. Ask God to give you the courage to acknowledge what's really there. Ask God to give you the faith to believe if you don't. Ask God to move in your life in deeper and stronger ways so that more and more your life reflects the faith that you do have. Make this a moment and opportunity of reflection and prayer and response to who God is and what He has done on your behalf that you could never do. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to be here to worship you because you and you alone are worthy. You and you alone are enough. And help our lives to reflect the faith that we have. Help to grow and strengthen that faith in our lives. As we move from knowing about you to knowing you. Lord, be honored by all that we say, do, think, sing, and pray in this moment.